0: Oh, good morning, everyone. We're going to get started here today. We are on week three. Please turn with me to Genesis 12. We're going to look at verses one through three. What we've been doing this back half of summer is looking at the Old Testament and trying to understand or follow the Old Testament storyline through seven key passages. I'd submit to you that if you know these seven key passages... You have the major anchor points of not only the pivotal stories of the Old Testament, but those launch pads from which Old Testament thinking and theology and the promises of God and the actions of God and the working of God's people, you know, spread out from. It's a very detailed book, as we all know. But if you got these seven rooted down, I think you're going to be uh, have some good footing going through this. So here they are. It's Genesis 1, verse 26 to 28. Genesis 3, verse 14 to 15. Today, as I said, is Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Next week, we'll look at Exodus 19, verses 3 through 6. After that, we're going to look at Deuteronomy 6. Then we're going to go into Deuteronomy 28 through 32. I don't mean verses. I mean chapters. Yeah, I know that's four. Uh, Give me a break. It's all right. And then... uh, The last one is 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 to 16. You got those? I think you're going to be pretty strong going through the Old Testament. And uh, you might not know every detail, but you're going to know the main gist of what's going on. So let's read it, and then we'll come up for air and see what's going on. Here it goes. Yahweh had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. And then they uh, they drop some rhymes and bust into a song. Here's what it says. I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. I cannot overstate how important this passage is for the Old Testament and the New Testament alike. A lot of times you could read a few verses in the Bible and you go, oh, well, okay, that's nice. So <laughs> that's interesting. But this, this sets the course and the direction for everything God is going to do in his massive creation operation and restoration operation of his creation. So... Let's dig into the details of who this guy is, of the storyline here, and then connect the dots of how it works in that whole Old Testament flow that we've been seeing from Genesis chapter one on. So first thing that's important to know, and I'm not going to take a lot for granted here. So if you know this stuff already, feel really good about yourself. And if you don't know this, then that's why I'm doing it. All right. Abram is Abraham. So my guess is you've heard of Abraham in the Bible. They are one and the same. Names in the Bible often carry with it a sense of destiny or significance or meaning. And people are named more than for the reason of just, I like how that sounds. So Abram means something like exalted father or great father or something like that. And God, because of some promises that he's going to make to Abram, is going to rename him Abraham to signify a destiny he's going to have, which means father of many nations. So, long story short, bullet point one, Abram is Abraham. Got it? All right, so, we have got this story of something that God promises to, and I'll call him Abram now, but if I go back and forth, don't get confused by that. Let's sum up what this is. What does God tell Abram to do? Just kind of flush it out. To leave his country, country, all right? And to do what after he leaves his country? (coughs) Okay, go to the land I will show you. Now, if you read the Bible with chapter and verse divisions, it feels like a fresh chapter or story. But it's really not, because we see Abram come on the scene a little bit beforehand. And I think there's something important to simply note in this. I've heard a lot of times people preach on this or teach on this passage, and it would go something like this. Suddenly, we meet this guy named Abram. And out of nowhere, God plucks Abram and says, I'm going to choose you, and I'm just going to tell you to go somewhere. And Abram's like, where do I go? And God says, well, I'll show you when you get there. Almost as though it is like this completely random incident happening. But it's really not. And you know it's not because if you just take the time to read three verses back, you see that this has already been in motion. Go back and look at it with me. And we can start probably at uh, verse... Well, I don't know because I can't read that small. But it says this. This is the account of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, so now we know who Abram's dad is, okay? And he also was the the father of Nahor and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, you might not know where that is, but it's basically Babylon. And that is going to have a lot of significance for the entire Bible because even though this story happened well before the nation of Babylon existed, the story was most likely written when Israel was already full aware of who Babylon was. And Babylon, of course, is the archenemy of Israel. So it's fascinating that this guy, Abram, is coming out of Ur of the Chaldeans, or Babylon. Are you with me? All right, let's keep going and see if I can get my eyes to focus here. So Abram and Nahor both both married. Um, the name of Abram's wife was, in here, Sarai. She will later get her name changed to Sarah. Bible does this all the time. So we have Abram and Sarai at this point. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and, uh, um, and I can't read. Now Sarai was barren and she had no children. Here's the significant part. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, uh, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram. And what did they do? They went together. They set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan, which is what you would think of as the land of Israel, if you're unfamiliar with some of this biblical geography. But when they came uh, came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years and died in Haran. What's significant to me is that Abram was already on a journey from Babylon to Israel before God comes to him and gives him this command. But like anyone who's ever done a long road trip, you get halfway and you go, this really stinks, let's just stop here. And that seems to be what happened. Now, before this, there's really no comment on it. There's really no comment on any importance of Abram or Terah going from Ur of the Chaldeans to, to, uh, to Canaan. There's no real significance given to the name Canaan. There's no backstory to why this move might, being, might be being made. You as the reader know it because you already know the punchline, right? But what seems to have happened is that, I don't know, they got tired on the journey, or it got to be too much, or they ran out of supplies, or they said, hey, here's a nice patch of grass, here's a great I mean, who knows, any number of scenarios. But they camp midway. And so significantly, what they do is they fail to make the journey to the promised land, right? God is picking up the story where Tara stymied it, if you will. And so, Abram has to continue what his family started. And here's why this is significant in the storyline of the Bible. Because what we've been showing since Genesis chapter 1 is that God created this cosmos, if you will. Certainly this world we can limit ourselves to for this discussion right now. And he put it into humanity's hands. Rule the earth. Govern it be fruitful, multiply, fill it, subdue it, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air. God, in other words, has set up humanity to be his rulers, to be his, you'll hear terms like governors, like vice regents, like representatives, like ambassadors, but the language the Bible will will use is God's image. You will be my physical representation here on earth reflecting my glory, my governance, my rule, my judgment, my wisdom. You can keep spinning it, right? You are going to be the ones to oversee this whole thing. God sets humanity up in that position. And then we come to Genesis 3 last week, and we see that humanity messes it up. They just don't do the job well, and that comes with consequences, but what you'll see through the Bible is that when God starts, God finishes. And so he started with humanity. Just because humanity derails this doesn't mean that God will cease to use humanity. It just might look different than you expected to how God will work through humanity. So in Genesis 3, what we see is that God, despite the sin of Adam and Eve still chooses to use them, and through their offspring will bring about the defeat of the evil that came into this world and the evil forces that seek to destroy, despite that with it will come all kinds of hostility, calamity, pain, and death, right? But it's still through humanity that God is going about his business Of not only seeking to bring his presence and governance in this world, but also now his restoration and redemption of this world. Well, if you know the storyline of the Bible from Genesis chapter 3 to Genesis chapter 11, what you basically just need to visualize is a toilet because all that's happening from 3 to 11 is that someone has hit flush and the water and waste is just circling down lower and lower and lower and by the time you hit Genesis 11 the sin that you have seen begin in Genesis 3 has just multiplied and just like the sewage has just gotten ranker and thicker if you will And it ends with Genesis chapter 11 seeing humanity at its lowest. God has tried to intervene. God has tried to do some start overs like the flood. God has tried to orchestrate some things. It's not fixing the problem. And by Genesis chapter 11, there is a classic Sunday school passage that's often lost on people as to why it's important. And it just begs some, we got to fill in the gaps on this to make the full richness of what we're going to extract out of Genesis 12 come to life. And it's a story called the Tower of Babel. You hear this one? Now, just the very name alone should cue you if you're astute and paying attention to this. Because when you hear the Tower of, let me put it this way, Babel, what place do you hear in that? Babylon. And Babylon is the classic archetypal enemy of Israel. And here at this place called Babel, if you will, we'll call it Babel, which is basically or of the Chaldeans or somewhere in that vicinity, um, humanity goes, we want to ascend up to God. And so through their technology and all of their wisdom and all of their wit, they start to, well, build a tower. They build a building. Um, A lot of people would think it would be a ziggurat, and it has more mystical and religious significance than just like, wow, tall skyscraper. Um, But they're trying to build a way to connect with God. And what's great is while they're trying to build up towards God, it says God looks down. God comes down, and he goes, huh, And and, and the million-dollar question is whether he's sincere or sarcastic in this. But the line is basically, well, through all their knowledge, if humanity can do this, there's no telling what humanity can do. And so God scatters their language. And they're no longer able to communicate to each other. And because of that, they all just kind of start wandering around and dispersing and the project doesn't complete. There's a couple of things that the Bible will extract a lot of juice out of in this story. One is the idea that humanity seems to always have this propensity to want to take matters into their own hands to do it their way to try to get to God. We see it with Adam and Eve. Well, look at that fruit. If I eat of that fruit, I will have knowledge of good and evil and will be like God. We always think of that as a bad thing, but isn't really the thrust of what the Christian experience and call is all about is to become like God? And that doesn't mean to like lord it over people like God and demand people worship you or something like that, but to become God-like. And if you don't like how that sounds, what if I just substituted the word Christ? Isn't our call to become Christ-like? The the Orthodox tradition makes a big deal of this. What they call theopoiesis, which is becoming God-made, if you will. Um, But they're doing it their way. They're taking matters into their own hands. And you're going to see that happen a lot through the biblical storyline. People trying to take matters into their own hands. But God going, "Uh uh-uh. No, no, I have a way that we're going to do this, and you need to trust my way on it, even though your way makes more sense. The Abraham story is a great example of this. Abram gets his name changed to Abraham because God comes and makes him a promise in his old age that his descendants will be like the stars in the sky and like the sand on the seashore. And when I say the stars in the sky, I'm not talking the stars in the sky as they appear in Crystal Lake, Illinois, where you can see like eight stars, right? I mean like what you would see in a true blackout environment where you look up and it is just this glorious array where it is uncountable, if you will. Well, Abram's getting along in years, and his wife is too, and they know that they're not going to have kids by any natural means. So he talks to his wife, and he says, hey, can I try to like maybe have kids through your servant here? And can I sleep with her? And Sarai, for some reason, thinks that's a good idea, and or at least kind of capitulates on it. And Abram has a son. He takes matters into his own hands. And God comes into this, and he goes, you know what? I love your son, and I'm going to bless your son, but... That's not the way we're doing it. Trust me. You see that happen in the Tower of Babel story. With me so far? Here's what's more significant, and it's often missed, but you'll pick it up when we get to Deuteronomy 28 to 32 because it actually starts to make significant comment on the story. It's always great when the Bible gives commentary on earlier parts of the Bible to help you give insight. And what you see functionally happening at that Tower of Babel story in Genesis chapter 11 is that God disinherits humanity. So, think of humanity as God's natural heir, if you will. That we are, in a sense, sons of God. If you will. And if you're a girl, you're a son of God too, alright? And you want to be a son of God, ladies, because that gives you full legal rights in an ancient way. It's very countercultural cultural and it's really cool. So, God gets kind of so and I 'm just going to kind of spin this in like, like from a human emotional standpoint, but God gets so fed up with humanity and their complete debasement and their complete rebellion and their, keep, their way they completely keep taking matters into their own hands that when God scatters the nations and scatters their language, Deuteronomy will comment on that. Is God more or less? disinheriting humanity, going just like, you know, it's like a, it's a parent finally fed up going, you know what? You're on your own. You're not my son anymore. You're not my daughter anymore. You, you have chosen your own way. I've done everything to try to reconcile. You are so insistent on this. Oh, Okay, I am, I am loosing any sense of responsibility that I have for you anymore. Go and make your way. And what you'll see Deuteronomy even start to comment on is that as God disinherits these nations, so to speak, they become sons of other gods. And almost this idea that starts to set in that these other gods are now the ones who are over these nations. And you'll see the Bible get a lot of traction out of that in Daniel and in apocalyptic literature and the prophets and so on. Here's why Genesis 12 becomes significant. Because after disinheriting all of these nations, God says, but I'm going to choose one. And I'm not even so much going to choose a nation. I am going to choose a person. And through that person, I am going to make a new nation that will be my nation. It won't be the other gods' nations. It won't be the cut-off nations. This is going to be one that is special to me, holy to me, treasured by me, through which I am going to work. And the work that God is going to do through that nation is what Genesis 12, or that person who becomes a nation, is what Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is about. So, let's get into the rap part of this. When when God starts busting rhymes after he tells Abram to go to this land that I will show you, he just starts making promises. I'm going to let you unpack them so you have to interact with the text. So you tell me, What does God promise Abram here in these first few verses of Genesis 12? Just start shouting it out. Okay, you will be a great nation. So it's not just you, it's not just your family. I'm going to make you a great nation. Okay, boom, that's a big promise. What else? I'm going to bless you. All right, what else? I'm going to make your name great. You're going to fame. You're going to have renown, right? So I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. What else? And you will be a blessing. So I'm not only going to bless you, but you're going to be a blessing as well. Great. What else? All All people will be blessed through you. What else? And, and curse those who curse you. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. So I'm going to make you a great nation and I'm just going to bless the snot out of you. And I'm going to make your name great. People are going to know the blessing that I pour about you. They're going to see it. They're going to hear about it. Your name is going to endure, and the blessing that I pour upon you that makes you that great nation is going to endure. But not just to bless you. I am going to bless through you. You're going to be a blessing, too. you got a job to do. Your job is to be a blessing. Or maybe just inevitably, by who you are, you will be a blessing. But in one capacity or another... It's going to happen. You're going to be a blessing. And if people want to be blessed, what do they do? Well, they ally themselves with you. Because whoever blesses you, I'm going to bless. So if they're in with you, well, they're going to get blessing too. If they're on the outs with you, ah, nothing but curse land going on there. And the ultimate goal is at the end. All nations or all people Will be blessed through you. This is a continuation of the exact same storyline that we've been on, but the language is getting more defined, the focus is getting tighter because God is going to set up his rule in Genesis 1. We see that that should be good. God is not going to shirk that just because humanity falls into sin, but through humanity and their descendant or their seed is going to destroy the evil that has come into this world. But now here we see that God is still working through humanity. And he's still working through humanity to bring about his rescue, restoration, and redemption of the world. So God's plans have not been sidetracked. Are you following? But how God is going about carrying out this plan for his world is getting more focused and defined as the Old Testament carries on. Because what we see is now he's not just going to do it through humanity in general, but he's going to do it through a a cross-section of humanity, specifically this guy Abram, and specifically through Abram and arguably his descendants. God has disinherited the rest of humanity, but through this aspect of humanity, who I'm hoping will stay close to me, know me, seek me, doesn't say that they are at this point, but I think it's implicit in the storyline, and it gets explicit later, that God is still going to work that blessing operation of the entire world through the original machinations that he set up but now honed into Abram. So what that means is we've gone from this broad, wide humanity now through this one particular family and their descendants who will keep just growing and growing to a great nation, to bring about the rescue operation. This is the seedbed of everything of Israel in the Bible. When Jews think about their heritage, where they always go back to is Abraham or Abram as the starting block. And it's this passage right here that defines how the Jewish nation will come to view themselves, see themselves and operate and what it means to be a chosen people. We'll get that flushed out a little bit more next week. But this is the springboard that changes the trajectory for everything. Does that make sense? You got that? All right. Let's see how that's kind of working. Cool. Now, a couple of uh, observations about it. And this is going to get important later on, too. What does, according to Genesis 12, 1 to 3... What does Abram have to do in order to get this special calling by God? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we have this command, leave your country. But do you notice that there's no if condition on that? Like, if you leave your country and go to the land that I show you, then I will bless you. There's no if-then set up. God says, get up and go, right? And maybe you can argue that it's implicit in that, that this will result in what Abram chooses to do, but I will tell you that both Jewish and Christian thinking has made a lot of the issue that that if condition is conspicuously absent, God's just going to do it, right? I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. You're going to be a blessing. Whoever blesses you, I'll bless. Whoever curses you, I'll curse. I'm going to bless all people through you. Almost you could say, Abram, whether you like it or not, it's what's called an unconditional promise or an unconditional covenant. Have you ever heard the term covenant before? It's a very churchy word, and we don't really use it in, in, in everyday speech too much anymore. But, but a covenant is really nothing more than a contract, except I don't think contract quite fits the bill well enough because a contract sounds very, shall we say, cold and forensic. Covenant has a relational aspect to it. So we often talk about a marriage covenant, not a marriage contract. I mean, marriage really is a contract. It's just a promise. Two people are making to each other, right? Right? But it's a promise that's embedded in something deeper and more relational. It's, it's not like signing up for a phone plan or something like that. It, it, just, it doesn't seem to equate the same way. So a covenant is really nothing more than a contract, but a relationally based contract. And this is an unconditional covenant where God just says, I'm making you a promise. And if God is faithful, well, <laughs> you take him at his word. And Abram will actually wrestle with that later on in the storyline going, God, how can I trust you? Should I trust you? Can I trust you? Help me trust you. And the Bible will make a lot of that as well. But for our purposes today, God just chooses him. And there is a very key doctrine in the Old Testament that certainly just explodes out into the New Testament as well, that in many ways finds its seedbed here And that doctrine is called election. Have you ever heard of that before? Now, if we're to get out of, like, the biblical arena and just talk, like, the rest of life, what's an election? Picking, right? So when you're choosing something, you can elect a president, you can elect a mayor, you can elect someone to be your you know, class leader for the day, you can elect who's going like to clean up after the party. I mean, I don't know. Any time that you are choosing, right, that is electing or an election. And on what conditions do you choose? Well... Maybe there's a lot of things that you look at inside. Maybe you look at ability. What else do you look at when you choose? You like them? What else? Why do you choose people? Because they align with you? What else? What's that? Dependability. Maybe they want to serve, right? What else? Convenience. You want to go home, right? We don't want to debate this anymore. Let's vote. What else maybe you don't like them, maybe you're just like, "Yeah, give them that job, you know and and, and there's something like that: Why does God choose Abram? arguably. Yeah, we see that through him, God is going to certainly use it as a mechanism. He's choosing to set him up. But why Abram specifically? Why not Nahor? Right? Why not Terah? Why not Lot? Why not any other number of people? Because God knows. It doesn't say. It doesn't say. And the Bible will make... A big deal of that. Going doesn't say that there's anything special about Abram. Anything more holy or righteous about Abram. Anything more special that he offered enough sacrifices so he got on God's good side or, or was like Job and led a really good life or something. It doesn't, there's no comment. God simply chooses. And the Bible will make a big deal about that because it, it reveals something. God can do what he wants, and sometimes God just chooses things or decides things for his purposes that he can have his reasons for, but that remain utterly mysterious and unknown to us, and Abram becomes one of the prime examples of this that you'll see throughout the Bible, that within God's operation of this world, he just makes choices. For example, why did God choose humans? Why did he make humans the image of God? What if we were discovering uh, uh, an extraterrestrial species someday? And, you know, when we find out that they're far wiser, far more righteous, far better, and go, why didn't God choose them? Well, that's a good question. I don't know why God didn't choose them. He chose humanity, right? God just, yeah, he likes the challenge, Right. God just chooses at times, and this becomes one of these prime examples of God just choosing someone to say, You know, through you, I'm going to do it for my own purposes, for my own reasons, for my own understanding of things. Yeah. It's interesting because it seems like God chose Noah because he was righteous. Yeah, it does. But then that- Five chapters earlier, six chapters earlier, it seems that God chooses this one guy, Noah, to do the big rescue operation through, and he's righteous, and then it didn't work out. So, yeah, is God going, learn from that mistake. Let's pick a loser this time. And and, and honestly, I say that a little bit joking, but only partially joking, because I think the storyline of the Bible can be summed up in that God chooses losers. He does. God chooses losers to do his greatest work through. And... Later on, we'll see actually <laughs> Deuteronomy make a big deal of this, where Israel, where, it's Deuteronomy chapter 8 or maybe chapter 9, where God is just like, you know, Israel, don't think I'm, I'm choosing you because you're the greatest of nations. No, I'm kind of choosing you because you're the loser nation. And uh, actually, it has nothing to do with how good or holy or righteous you are. It's how God seems to like to roll. We see some of the pattern here. We see God simply choosing, electing or selecting for whatever his own reasons might be some guy we've barely heard of to save the world, to work through, to bring blessing to all nations on earth who have insisted on going their own way and find themselves under the captivity of of their own making and other gods, if you will. You cannot make enough out of this story. It is huge. And if you get it, you're going to be on good footing for understanding where the storyline of the Bible is going to take us. Now, for maybe just a couple of minutes, it's probably worth noting this as well. And it's going to feel like a trick question. And I don't know if it is. I don't mean it that way. So don't overthink it. Where do you find God in the Bible? In the Old Testament. Where do you find God? And you want to go everywhere. I heard someone say everywhere. Because, of course, God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. And that is not where you find God in the Bible. Okay, you don't see people looking under rocks to find God. You don't see people looking deep in their souls to find God. You do see people going on mountaintops looking for God, and most of the time they don't find him on those mountaintops. Sometimes they do, but not most of the times. But there is a consistent place where God is to be found in the Bible. And where's the temple? Yeah, in the tent of meeting. He resides in the tent of meeting. And where is the tent of meeting going? Because the tent of meeting is a tent. It's portable. So the tent is on the move too. Where does it want to set up roost? Jerusalem, Israel, promised land, Canaan. Within this story... You have embedded this idea that will get very significant throughout the Bible is that God is to be found in a certain land and in this certain land, God is going to work in a special way and in this special way, he is going to work his rescue operation for the world. And so this idea of coming out of Ur of the Chaldeans, right, this forsaken Babylon place and coming to Canaan where God is going to lead Abram to set up the great nation becomes something that the Bible is going to develop in a hardcore way too. And we, we just got to save the rest of that storyline till next week because it doesn't give us more. You got to read a whole lot of Genesis and then the beginning of Exodus to see how that storyline is going to develop. And then we'll get to a key aspect of it next week at 19. So if you'd like to, on your own, flush this storyline out and go, where's this going? What I'd encourage you to do this week is as fast as you possibly can. Read the rest of Genesis from chapter 12 on and the first half of Exodus up through chapter 18. And it's actually a pretty gripping read. It's an interesting read. Um, It's it's not a lot of, you get a couple of little genealogies here and there, but for the most part it's like, it's storyline and intrigue and battles and warfare and love affairs and, and all kinds of crazy kind of things going on and God interacting and surprise twists and you can actually probably read it in less than an hour if you're reading it like a novel, as opposed to reading it as a devotional experience. And it's probably worth familiarizing yourself with it if you haven't done that in a while. So we'll land the plane there, because we're out of time, and we'll pick it up next week at Exodus 19. God bless.